Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. 1 to 9. At the beginning of the new year, we are confronted with the fact of death, that death is the end of all men. I was on my way home from Dayton yesterday and drove past the cemetery and noticed how sparse the population outside the walls of the cemetery were, but how dense the population inside the walls of the cemetery was. There were a lot of dead people in that cemetery. And I began to fantasize about all the dead being raised. And how many people would there be if all of a sudden everybody in cemeteries were to stand and rise if the dead were raised? And we think about death often. We think about it going past cemeteries. We think about it when we go past hospitals. We think about it when we have something else on our bodies break down. We think about it uh, frequently. And at the beginning of a new year is a time when we are especially aware that death is our end, that we were made of dust, that we will return to dust. Um, I was irritated with my wife a week ago when uh, she, she told a story a number of times about a particular death, and I was thinking, for heaven's sakes, you know, let's, let's move on. I don't want to think about death. Well, at the beginning of a new year is a good time to think about death. And as we think about death, let me ask you, do you know the concept of finishing? Any of you ever played soccer? What does it mean when they say he, he can't finish? It's not good, is it? It's not good at all. What it means is that you never make a goal. That you have good thoughts, you may have good ball handling, you may be able to do good crosses, you, you may have a lot of things that you're able to do, but you can't finish. Well, the Bible tells us to finish well. And the only way we're going to finish well is if we have the goal in mind. And the goal is a good death. And there is such a thing as a good death. And a good death is when you've finished. Last night, the Tennessee Titans played football. And rarely have I seen such a good example of a team that didn't know how to finish. You know, they, they fumbled twice had an interception and all within a few yards of a goal and so they lost well you think of the titans you think of other uh occasions when maybe you've had a recital and you've done a bad job um and today we need to ask ourselves what is it that causes us to finish well um when i was in high school there were a couple of things that caused me to think a lot about finishing one was algebra and the other was cross country and in our home uh probably the highest uh, compliment you could get in our home was if if somebody said you were bright you know we just thought the world of bright people and so uh when i hit algebra i learned that i was dumb because it didn't matter how hard I worked, how, how, how committed I was to learning algebra. It didn't matter how closely I listened in class or how much I read the text when I got home. It never made and still doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> then also cross country. I learned that about two-thirds of the way through the cross country run, it no longer matters where you place. All that matters is that you finish. 
And so today I want to ask you, how are you going to finish life? It's the beginning of a new year. How are you going to finish? I like collecting books about gravestones. I think the gravestones we have today are absolutely ridiculous. And I guess you wouldn't know that unless you look at books of old gravestones. And if you want to borrow, I'll, I'll loan this out to you as long as you promise to give, give it back to me. But let me read to you a couple of things that, uh, are from gravestones of the past, all right? Just at random. Affliction sore, long time I bore, physician's skill was vain. Then God did send death as a friend to ease me from my pain. How's that one? Okay. Um, Sacred to the memory of Mr. Jared Bates, who died August the 6th, 1800. His widow, aged 24, who mourns as one who can be comforted, lives at 7 Elm Street, this village, and possesses every qualification for a good wife. (laughs) That's at random. (laughs) Okay, how about another one? I wish I could find the one that says, oh boy, here's one for Mary Fowler, age 24. Molly, though pleasant in her day, was suddenly seized and went away. How, right, how soon she's ripe, how soon she's rotten, laid in her grave and soon forgotten. I'll give you one more funny one, or sad. Wait. A devoted martyr to the cause of his country. Reader, art thou possessed of liberty? He died for thee. All right, let me read you these two. Here lies... This is from Newbury, Massachusetts. Here lies the body of Mr. Daniel Noyes, who died March the 15th, 1716, aged 42 years, 4 months, and 16 days. As you were, so was I. God did call, and I did die. Now, children, all whose name is Noyes, make Jesus Christ your only choice. Okay, one more. Josiah Linden died August 8, 1709. And this is one of the most popular things to be on the tombstones at this time in New England. Behold and see, for as I am, so shalt thou be. But as thou art, so once was I. Be sure of this, that thou must die. Death is your end, and you're going to be dead very soon. Those of you in the springtime of life, remember that Scripture says that human life is like the grass and the flowers. In the spring, they come up. Remember how recently it was springtime? And now winter is almost over. We're about to hit spring again. And you, you know, those of you who have lived a long time, how quickly spring is gone. 
And then how quickly the hay's cut, the straw's baled, the soybeans have been harvested, and it will be Thanksgiving again, and then winter. And this is true of us. We will be dead soon. It's been happening a long time, and it shouldn't catch us by surprise. And so a wise man, a wise woman, prepares for death. Now, how do you prepare for death? Well, you finish well. And finishing well in this life is not getting uh, to the Super Bowl for the Titans, and it's not getting a goal as a soccer player. Finishing well is something very different from a cross-country race. There is an endurance that I want to speak to you about this morning that dwarfs the importance of all these other challenges. And it's the endurance that Paul speaks of here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's read this section of God's Word this morning. It is God's Word and it is eternally true. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Stop for a second and think with me. What was the church of Corinth like? When I was at UW-Madison, I took in my senior year a class in classical Greek. One day, we were doing translation. We hit a sentence that nobody could figure out. And the sentence had something like Corinth and not and many and live. And everybody kept trying to put it together in a way that made sense. And nobody could do it. And then finally, one student said, not, not many can live in San Francisco. And immediately, Mrs. Fowler said, yep, that's it precisely. Because at that time, San Francisco was even worse than Las Vegas. Everybody knew that San Francisco was beautiful. It was a wonderful place, especially if you were committed to completely going to hell morally. San Francisco was a place you wanted to do it. And uh, now I think really Las Vegas has taken its place. It's called Sin City. And if you want to go someplace and sin anonymously and act like you're doing work and write it off on the government, you go to Las Vegas and you do it. Well, this is what Corinth was like. Corinth was the height of decadence in the Roman Empire. It was a business place of wealth, but it was also a place of religious fervor. But the religion that they practice there was a religion that would cause them in the temple to pray that God would increase the prostitutes among them. So you get an idea what Corinth was like. And of course, uh, 
it's true what Francis Schaeffer said that if you want to know what uh, if you want to know what the uh, the church will be like in a few years, look at the world now. In ten years, that's what the church will be. And so the church of Corinth was disgusting sexually. There was a man who, with impunity, was a part of the church who was sleeping with his father's wife. But it wasn't just sexual, it was also intellectual pride. It oozed intellectual pride. So if you want to be accused of being an anti-intellectual, just hide the fact that it's a Bible, but read from Corinthians to any group of Christian intellectuals. They'll think you're an anti-intellectual. Because the warnings it has against intellectual pride are very, very sobering. It also was a church that took the sacrament of the Lord's table and turned it into an opportunity to get drunk and to show who was rich and who was poor. And, of course, it wasn't the poor people trying to show it. So some people had lots to eat and drink. Some people went ahead and ate and drank and got drunk at the Lord's table and didn't think anything about the other believers in the church who didn't have enough, who who were hungry, who were thirsty. Now, what kind of a church is that? You've got incest... It's public. Everybody knows about it. Nothing's done about it. It's a church that uses speaking in tongues as a way of one-upmanship. It's a church that's filled with intellectual pride. It was a church that some people among them denied the resurrection. All right? What kind of a church is it? It's a pretty disgusting place, isn't it? Would you call it a church? Probably not, right? The amazing thing is, look at what Paul says here. Paul says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Billy, the will of God. And what he's saying there is, I've been set apart by God, not myself. And so what I'm going to say to you, listen, it's like a dad saying to his son, that is your mother. Or the mother saying, I am your mother. Paul's an apostle by God's choice. And Sosthenes, well, Sosthenes was a part of the Corinthian church. He'd come from there. So it's like me and your buddy. All right. And then he says, to the church of God. That's the church. And he calls it a church. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. And then he goes on and he says, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Saints by calling. Now that gives you hope for yourself, doesn't it? If people like that could be called the church and could be called saints, then there is hope for us, isn't there? And so he says to the church, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the text and you'll look at what he said so far, you'll see that the focus is not on them, except insofar as they are the ones that God has worked in. Do you see that? He's an apostle by what? By the will of God. All right? God's the one. All right? To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, how? They've been sanctified in, by Christ Jesus. And why are they saints? Look at the text. What does it say? Saints by calling. Who's called them? Their pastor? Their mother? No. It is God who has called them. 
And then he brings in all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace. Where does the grace and peace come from? It doesn't come from their wife or from their boyfriend. It doesn't come from their parents. But it comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, and it's inconceivable. Think of that, church. He says, I thank my God always concerning you. So he's about to discipline them, and he says, I thank God all the time about you. For the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Again, are they the active agents or the passive ones? They're the passive ones. They have been given grace in Jesus Christ that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. In other words, this was a church that specialized not just in knowing what was right, but in speaking it. You know, there are many people who know doctrine, who know scripture, who know truth, but have no ability to speak it. Sometimes you've had the privilege of being taught by people like that, and it's, it's a brutal experience. You know, they have the knowledge here, but they don't have the ability of, of speaking it. There are other people you've had the privilege of being taught by who have the ability to speak, but they have absolutely no knowledge. And so you sit there listening to them, and it doesn't profit you anything, right? Corinthians had both knowledge and speech. In other words, God had given them serious spiritual gifts, right? And he's commending them for their gifts. All right? Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. In other words, the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and that faith in him would save them, was confirmed in them. They believed, and it was clear that God had chosen them and that God was making them holy. So that you are not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you think, how can a church which tolerates a man living in incest with his dad's wife be spoken of as a church that's eagerly awaiting the second coming of the Lord? Well, this is the nature of us. Uh, Jeff, this morning, led us in prayer and and. Um, we prayed as Christians, and then Jeff spent the prayer confessing our sin of rebellion against authority. Did you hear that? Did you enter into the prayer? And how can those who claim Christ as Lord be rebels against authority? And yet, that's absolutely true of me. Thank God that we're disciplined. Remember that? To submit to authority. And I immediately thought about speeding tickets, right? which I'm very happy to say I haven't gotten one recently. How can we hate authority when we are under the lordship of Jesus Christ? And this is the truth about us, that um, we are both holy and sinners, that we are both set apart and sanctified and also unbelievably bound up with this world and not any different than anybody else who doesn't know Christ. And so Paul looks at the church And he speaks truth when he says that they're set apart, that they're chosen, that they're sanctified. And why is he doing it? Think about that. What is the purpose of the letter again? It's to discipline them and to bring them to unity, to bring them to humility, to cause them to no longer take pride in their superior spiritual gifts, to cause them to cast out the man that's living with his father's wife. In other words, he's got a whole lot of work to do. This is a mess of a barn, a mess of a kitchen. It's had ten cooks. 
And he has to go in there and clean it up with this letter. And he starts in this way. Now, what would be the purpose of this? Why would he start by calling them a church, talking about the work of God, and them assuring them that he gives thanks for the word, telling them all the gifts that God has given to them when he's about to take them to the woodshed? Why would he do that? The reason is that he's a good father, good mother. He's a good parent. Because he realizes that it is much of affection that causes us to submit to discipline and to change. You know, if you're going to spank your son, you put your arm around him as you walk to the bedroom, right? Fathers that discipline their children... Because of love, always couch their discipline in love. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. And he's not making it so much about his love for them, but God's. Because he's speaking to them in discipline in God's name. And so he's reminding them how much God has loved them and chosen them and called them. And how much work God has done in them and how many gifts God has given them. So that as he speaks to them about God's holiness, their hearts are tugged towards God and the affection and love for God and thanksgiving for what God has done crosses the divide of the pain of discipline so that the discipline will take and produce the fruit. All right? That's what's going on here. Now, there's a lesson here for parents. A father who disciplines his son because he's inconvenienced, humiliated, because he can't watch television, because his wife is nagging him, is not loving his child. In other words, if the response to your discipline is further resentment and bitterness on the part of your children, it's very clear you haven't loved them as you've disciplined them, isn't it? But the point of Paul doing this is not to teach us how to raise our children, but to reassure us as we are disciplined by the book of 1 Corinthians that God has called us, that God has chosen us, that he has gifted us, Given us gifts, and what? Well, look at the last couple of verses. So that you're not lacking, verse 7, in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has chosen you. God has given you gifts. I thank God for you. And God will keep you to the end. You will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at above and you'll see in verse 2 that he speaks past tense about those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then he says that they will be confirmed to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do you figure this? that a church that had a man committing an incest and that was proud and that was using spiritual gifts to whoop up on each other, that was not waiting for each other at the Lord's table, getting drunk, using their wealth as a way of establishing superiority over their brothers and sisters in Christ, are spoken of as having been sanctified and are promised that God will keep them blameless on the day of Jesus Christ. So... So what's the deal in the middle? 
Are there any of you today who feel blameless and that you want Christ to return right now so that you can establish your worthiness? Are there any of you who would characterize this last year as a great step forward for you spiritually? That day by day you increased in holiness and godliness and that now you have much more confidence to stand before Jesus Christ. Are any of you... Would any of you say that as you've gone on in your Christian life, examining your heart, that each day you've gained more confidence based on your own holiness? No. Probably, if you know the Lord, what you would say is that each day you've gained confidence knowing the mercy of Jesus Christ. And how do you discover mercy? Well, you discover mercy by studying your own sin and realizing that Christ died for you. That's the thing that's so counterintuitive about the Church of America today, is that most churches think that the way to encourage people to live a Christian life is by hiding their sin. Because if if they can't see their sin, then they won't be discouraged. And, And we all know that you can't be discouraged and have faith. And yet the truth is that it's precisely when we're discouraged that we finally turn and look at Jesus and see his righteousness. And so it's always good to be reminded of your sin so that you love Jesus. After all, whoever wanted a Savior who didn't know that they needed to be saved? And so as we grow in the Christian life, it's not that all of a sudden we have more hope because we understand that we're not as bad as we thought we were or because we understand that day by day we're becoming more sanctified, and we can see it and we think, well, that's hopeful. No, it's because day by day we see more and more what the Apostle Paul says, which is at the end of his life, what? The Apostle Paul at the end of his life says, I am what? I am the chief of sinners. So apparently Paul's confidence as he got older was not that He'd submitted to being stoned, that he'd been shipwrecked, that he was naked, that he'd written many helpful letters to the church, and that God eventually would put them in the New Testament, and that 2,000 years later they'd be preached. But apparently as he got older, the more he thought of himself, the more he saw his own sin. And he could say, I am the chief of sinners. I don't get it, because uh, when I read the Apostle Paul, I'm always strengthened spiritually, always built up, always warned, always dealt with in a godly way. And I know the Holy Spirit wrote it, but the Apostle Paul was used by the Holy Spirit. I don't get how he could say he's the chief of sinners. But then I remember that the point of the Christian life is to think large of God and small of ourselves. And to realize that it is the righteousness of Christ that is our righteousness. And so what Paul is saying here is, you, let's forget Corinth for a second, and let's think about Bloomington. Our intellectual pride, our sexual sin, our one-upmanship based on our gifts, I'm a prophet. Everything we are as a church, he says, God has gifted you, God has called you, God has chosen you, you are sanctified, and on the day of Jesus Christ, the day of judgment, 
God will finish his work. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that God will finish his work with you? If you look in your heart, the answer is no, isn't it? It doesn't seem possible that somebody that has known the Lord as long as I have and yet loves his sin as much as I do could ever finish well. But the Apostle Paul is not telling us that the Corinthians specialized in finishing well. The Apostle Paul is saying that God started the work, God called them, and God was going to finish his work because he's a good workman. Mary Lee and I um, used to, when we were young and had just entered the ministry, we used to really get a kick out of looking at uh, um, directories, and we used to do church directories, but now we don't believe in church directories. And it's for kind of a weird reason, and that is that it's gotten to the point in our lives where looking over church directories is a pretty depressing business. You want to be really depressed about this church, go back and look at the pictures of our deacons over the years. You know how many deacons we've had to excommunicate in this church? And you look at the pictures in the directory and you see again and again and again and again people that have not ended well. You know, some of them that we have watched over the years are gone. They don't live anymore. But some of them are still living. And so how can I say that they haven't ended well? I can't. Because they haven't ended yet. Do you understand? But boy, they've made shipwreck of their faith. You know, one that's really safe to talk about is adultery. People who live a life of a lie for years against their wife or their husband, and then all of a sudden it comes in the open. And all the lies are visible. The children then have to deal with hating their mother or hating their father and loving them at the same time, and they have to deal with being the the ball that's bounced between the father and the mother as they fight after the divorce, and just everything goes to hell. It's just awful, right? And so you look at men who have left this church because of adultery, and and you say, well, they haven't ended well, but you know something? They haven't ended yet. And so they've been put under discipline, but do you remember anybody else that committed adultery? Remember King David? And do you remember that Nathan went to David and confronted him, disciplined him? And do you remember David's response? David wrote Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your spirit. Then I will teach transgressors of your ways, and sinners will be converted unto you. You know what I want here? What I want is our deacons to come home. 
And I want them to teach my heart about the mercy and forgiveness of God. In other words, the story isn't told until the body is in the ground. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And so, you know, you may be someone here today who has committed adultery. And you say, well, apparently there's no hope for me because God hasn't kept me to the end. And I say, were you disciplined? And you say, well, what do you mean, was I disciplined? And I say, well, for instance, what did your wife say to you? And you say, well, that wasn't helpful. I say, how about your church? Did your church discipline you? And you say, no. And I say, would you have any friends that rebuked you? And you say, no. Now, what I'm doing here is I'm showing you that King David was an adulterer and that he killed the husband that he'd cuckolded. He was an adulterer and a murderer. He wrote Psalm 51. He was disciplined. And the Bible says that he's a man after God's own heart. And so here the Apostle Paul is saying that God will finish the work. And that is the reason that you are to have devotions, that you are to be faithful in coming to church and sitting under the worship of the people of God, the preaching of the word, the sacraments. It is the reason that when elders come to you and discipline you, you are to submit, that it's your privilege to submit to them because this is the work of God that causes you to be kept for the day of the judgment. This is how God sanctifies us. In other words, the fact that God's going to finish the work doesn't mean that all of us can say, well, let me sin that grace may abound. Let me find a church where I'm going to be, you know, lullabied to sleep and given drugs, you know. But rather, this is a reason for us to double our zeal, double our intensity in training our children, memorizing Scripture, having devotions, praying, loving God, because He will keep us to the end. In other words... If you have a father who never, ever tells you good job when you're done your work. Never, ever. If you have a father that you could never please, what kind of work do you do? You hate work. Because it's always about proving to him that he's actually better than you are. Because he'll always find something wrong with what you did, right? But if you serve a God who says, look, I started the work and I'm going to complete it, trust me. What does that cause you to do? Become without compunction of conscience? Does that cause you to give yourself to adultery? No. It causes you, just like a son with his dad, to try to do the best work you possibly can. Because no matter what you do, if it's in the tiniest direction of being good... Your father is going to compliment you and commend you and take pride in you. And this is God. God is not a nasty dad. God is a faithful father who cultivates our sanctification and who takes delight in us and who loves to give good gifts to his children. Okay? So you're sinful and you have little faith and God says... What faith you have is my gift, and I'm going to make sure that you end well, okay? And so you redouble your efforts. Not because those efforts will make you worthy. They won't. But because you love Jesus Christ. Because you love him. Because God is a good father.
Let me end with a couple of scriptures. Psalm 37, 17. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. You go, I'm not righteous. (laughs) It's Jesus' righteousness. It's not yours. You're righteous and he will sustain you. Psalm 37, 28. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. Romans 14.4, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him to stand. You know, just about the time it says stand he will, I'm thinking, no, he won't. And then it says the Lord is able to make him stand. Or maybe I should read it this way. The Lord is able to make him stand. 1 Thessalonians 3:12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. You see this theme of affection and love within the church, leadership, people, everybody loves everybody. How constant it is, is God's way of getting us to be sanctified. Love, affection. In other words, if you don't like fellowship in the church, you have to ask yourself whether you'd like heaven. And if you don't think you'd like heaven because it will be intimate, then you're probably not saved. You don't know Jesus Christ. Because love is the motivation that causes much of the good to happen. So he says, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And then 1 Peter 5.10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then finally, my my personal favorite is Philippians 1.6, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so, my brothers and sisters, the word from God to us at the beginning of 2009 is finish. Finish well. How? By trusting that God called you, you are holy, and so be holy. Persevere. And he will finish the work that he's begun in you. Let's pray.